0: Before the episode, I want to tell you really quickly that we are running an audience survey to learn more about our audience and look for feedback on improving the show. The last one we did was September 2021, and this show has just about doubled since then. So it's a good chance for us to get more feedback and learn how our audience has changed since then. It's really quick. It's a Google form. It only takes two minutes. There's a link in the description for this episode, and I really hope you can fill it out because it's really, really helpful for us to get feedback on the podcast and how to improve. And it's... Kind of interesting. There's not really a great natural way for you as a podcast listener to give us feedback with an email newsletter. You can hit reply or find the author and reach out that way, which you can do on the podcast. But there's not any real personal information that you're telling iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening on about you. No one is asking you for your LinkedIn or your job role or what have you. And so surveys are the best way we have to learn more about our audience as a podcast. So real quickly, it's only two minutes. It's a Google form. Should be in the description. I really appreciate you sharing your feedback and helping us improve the show. Thank you. And now on to the episode. This second episode is the second in a three-part series we are running on Chenmark, a highly successful small business holding company founded in 2015. Today, they've acquired 11 operating companies, completed 30 acquisitions, when including add-ons, and have over 600 employees today. This second episode focuses on their operating ethos, culture, and incentive structures. We discuss meeting cadence and formats across the company, the use of debt. CEO incentive models, broad incentives beyond CEOs, and lessons learned from building and maintaining good cultures. I hope you enjoy the second part in the series with James and Palmer Higgins. When it comes to accounting, quality of earnings reports, and financial due diligence, it's vital to have a partner who understands your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Jerry Joe and his team at Hood & Strong in San Francisco have a specialty for search funds and lower middle market private equity, with multiple podcast guests today trusting them with their partnership. Email jerry at J Z H O U at hoodstrong.com and visit their search and landing page at hoodstrong.com to learn more. For advice and observations on accounting for small businesses, here is Jerry himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Is there a quality of earnings evaluation of the business?
1: So, the quality of earnings, or, or Q of E, as we call it, is not a valuation of the business, but it serves as the basis for valuation. Valuation generally is derived from based on a multiple of earnings, or EBITDA, as we um, we call it, and it's driven specifically by market dynamics, right? The industry of the business, the size of the business, and also just the, the customer profile, among other things. What the QV does is it provides an, an earning profile about the business, and that you know, typically entails the, the various types of uh, adjustments we make to the, the company's earnings. Naturally, that's oftentimes a, a buy-side analysis that we perform on behalf of the buyers doing the due diligence as we evaluate the business earning profile. But we're also seeing a lot of uh, sellers uh, requesting us to perform this a sell-side quality of earnings. And for the reason of preparing the business for sale, and that's to anticipate you know what the buyers will find and, and prevent a- any potential surprises that could lead to. We negotiating the valuation of the, the the value of the business and prevent the deal from falling apart. And ultimately that facilitates and speed up the closing process.
0: To learn more about Hood and Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at JZHOU at Hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at Hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Oakborn Advisors, Ravix Group, and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. One thing that would be fun to kind of kick off with was we, we discussed the core values in a lot of depth in the last episode, but I'd be curious how the core values extend or extend to other portfolio companies. Obviously, that those are core values just for ChenMark, but I imagine there's some kind of similar themes that get shared amongst the other portfolio companies. How does that work and what kind of sharing or alignment is there?
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think one of the things we've been pretty pretty adamant about essentially since the kind of core values were put in place is making sure they left room for the individual operating companies to have their own set of core values and to sort of express some of these sentiments in their own unique way. It's so kind of the analogy that we we tend to draw is you know it in the in the US it it makes it means something to be a Mainer or a Floridian or a Californian and people can identify along those terms while at the same time identifying as American. And so it's sort of important to us to preserve the ability for an employee of an individual operating company to identify as a team member of that operating company while at the same time having some association with, with Chenmark overall. And so as far as the core values are concerned, it, we're not really emphasizing, emphasizing sort of rigid adherence as much as we are emphasizing kind of the sentiment or ethos sort of underlying some of these core concepts and, and kind of allowing room for individual companies to sort of express those sentiments or that ethos on their own terms.
0: And oftentimes I imagine that when you acquire a company, they already have a set of values and there's a there's a culture that's already there and has been around for a long time. What are some ways that you try to first acclimate and learn more about that culture and core values that that company already has? I, I imagine there's only so much you can do during the diligence process with the company before actually working with them directly.
2: It's a great question and and to be honest, I think it's actually sort of rare to have a a very strong kind of overt emphasis on core values with a lot of the companies that we've acquired or that we look at. I think in a lot of cases, smaller businesses tend to be a a manifestation or outcropping of the personality of the owner. And a lot of times that isn't necessarily, a lot of times the owner isn't necessarily trying to bring the rest of the team along with him or her in an explicit way and and so i would say and you know not not always the case but for the most part kind of the introduction to core values or behavioral standards or any that sort of thing we're we're mainly introducing some of that for the first time and i i would say kind of in a lot of cases our our approach is more It's almost sort of like brand marketing to begin with. So we're not saying, hey, here are the core values. You'll be evaluated on your adoption of these next week. It's more, here are the things we emphasize. And I would say we value consistency more than the speed of execution or of adoption. So I think it's more, hey, these are things we care about. Hopefully you see see us model the behaviors associated with these things. And the way you're going to tell that is by working with us for the next week, month, year, decade, et cetera. And so I I think it's more of a slow build where we're trying to sort of build buy-in and enrollment from the bottom up and less saying, hey, you're now part of ChenMark. Here's the way you must behave. It's more, hey, here's the way way we do things. Would you like to join us?
0: Is there a pretty wide range in terms of how quickly or how how smoothly that transition is from kind of the personality, the owner and seller and what they you know cared about and valued in the company to kind of a, a new version of those values that have some input from Chenmark, and I imagine a lot from the employees at that company as well.
2: Yeah, I think, and, and Palmer, you might be better positioned to speak to this given some of your experiences at, at, at mainly Grass or at Seabreeze, but it it, it kind of depends in terms of the speed there. I would say to the extent a company we're acquiring is being run by someone who's come through the GVP program, so has has had a lot of exposure to to ChenMark itself and to other operating companies by the time they're stepping into a CEO seat. Kind of they're setting the tone in a lot of cases. And and so I think that makes the adoption process quicker. I don't know, Palmer, any, anything you'd add?
3: I would say speed ties in... Has a, has a direct correlation with consistency so the more a team and not just the the person at the top but the more the team can buy into the core values and behave consistently in that way I think actually you can drive change relatively fast my experience has been that there's always a, there's a culture in every company whether it's overtly stated or not that's going to be a big differentiator and I agree with James that a lot of businesses a lot of small businesses probably don't have overt cultural values stated. My experience, if I take mainly Grass as an example, there was a there was a desire to have very strong alignment around, around some core values, which drove very quick adoption because it was what everyone wanted to buy into. And I really felt like my role was to give them the freedom to align ourselves around those core values and then evaluate opportunities or decisions through that lens. And in that case, adoption can be quite quick. I imagine if you get in to a company where maybe there isn't that alignment or at the top just some people are trying to drive standards and behaviors in alignment with certain core values and others aren't or there's inconsistency in in how you uphold them then i think that's going to drastically change how quickly they can be actually adopted throughout the organization
0: how do you assess the kind of willingness to change or define a set of values and culture I, I imagine there's you know, at first there's going to be perhaps people who are you know, really excited about it or you know, excited to meet you and the you know, new ownership, but that, you know, over time you'll learn if, if they really want to change or not, or if they re- really do have the culture that they say they do. Like, how do you know when a team is like ready to change or ready to define what they want to do? It sounds like mainly grass is pretty willing to tell you up front that they were excited to, you know, identify around some set of values. Sure. I think the question is,
3: you know, are you ready? But do you really internalize that deeply? And are you willing to change your behaviors, right? So I won't lie, like some people who would have been very strong in alignment around our core values when they were words, maybe weren't not maybe were not as much aligned when it came to actions. And so I think everyone wants to be a part of something, for sure. And I think the important part is to have alignment as opposed to these core values versus those core values. And the important thing is when a push comes to shove and people aren't a fit for those core values, you you have to make you, know, you have to make tough calls because the important thing is you have a team that buys in in principle to the to the big ticket items that you as an organization say are are important.
2: Yeah, I think just to echo Palmer's point, I think I'm not sure we've come across a a, a team or a small business where there isn't some Fundamental underlying desire for belonging. I think it's it's more rare to find that sort of wrapped up in an explicit framework. And I think for us, what we found is that, again, making sure to provide space for there to be kind of en- call it kind of enrollment versus conscription. You know, the idea is look like it's 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 worthwhile to stand for something and to be to be fairly upfront about that and to talk about outcomes and behavior kind of along those terms and i think downstream then you that it kind of that creates the ability to have a if there's if there's some kind of dissonance going on right someone's behaving in a way that's not necessarily aligned you know it, it creates an opportunity to have a conversation along those terms as opposed to you know why didn't you get this report in on time or why didn't this you know such and such thing happen it can be more hey these are the things that we stand for. It seems like you know there's some things going on that don't necessarily align with those. You know, do you, if if the things that we stand for are different than the things that you stand for, you know, we can have a productive conversation about that and determine if this is the right fit. For this this company or you know this organization overall is the right fit. I think that tends to be tends to create at least in our experience a more a, a sort of a deeper and and, and more meaningful conversation than. Hey, like, why'd you miss this deliverable?
0: It sounds like a lot of this is tied in with kind of Palmer Deeger point on consistency, having a consistent messaging and stream of communication. Are there a set of recurring meetings or ongoing discussions that you you set up and have maybe for the first you know year in the business and then even beyond? Like, What does is, what is that recurring conversation setup look like in terms of Is there weekly team meetings or monthly? And then how do you emphasize or remind folks for values, culture, and areas of focus? I don't think there's a right answer to this. I
3: certainly have a cadence in the organizations that I've been a part of have driven a cadence of communication and meetings that are all opportunities to reinforce those elements. I actually rarely talk about core values directly. It's not like we have meetings that say, Hey, you know, this is the core value talking meeting where we're going to sit around and we're going to talk about our core values. I think instead, it's the interactions between team members or between teams or divisions of the company where you have an opportunity to reinforce your core values through the way that you act or through the way that you respond to adversity or to issues. So I can say like, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of... Communication within organizations. One thing I've, I've learned working now in a couple different small businesses, being fairly surprised how poor communication is generally. If you think in a small business, communication should be a lot better than in a bigger business. It's much easier to talk to literally everyone in the company or close to it. You'd be surprised how little that actually happens or how little people are on the same page and you get even more siloing. And so I'm a big believer in a, in a regular cadence of meetings. I talk to my senior leadership team every single day. We have a daily check-in every single morning. Generally, have weekly weekly meetings with team, if not daily, depends, and then monthly meetings on more of a review cadence, and then sort of more infrequent ad hoc stuff around projects, and so all of those are opportunities to reinforce. One thing I've picked up from seeing the value of, of weekly thoughts, frankly, is getting into a cadence myself of writing to my whole team every single Sunday, and that gives sort of forces a forcing function on my end to figure out what. I think is most important to discuss and also lets me address the team in a way that I can't in person because generally I'm I'm working with distributed teams across a very wide geographic footprint that I can't physically see or shake hands with or whatever on a daily basis. So those are things that I've used to communicate and, and every one of those is an opportunity to reinforce values and behaviors.
2: So what I'd add is from a kind of Chenmark overall level, we, we we really try to emphasize at least the opportunity for building kind of lateral connective tissue across the organization. So it doesn't work. It's, it's fairly inefficient and, and not very scalable if information and rela- kind of relationships, relationship capital flows up, gets digested, and then sort of flows down to kind of the next company over. And so where we can, we try to make sure that we're creating opportunities for folks in at, at individual operating companies to interact directly with one another, and that's one of the ways our our sort of GPP program helps reinforce that because in a lot of cases, by the time someone gets to a CEO role at one of our operating companies, they've worked at another one of our operating companies or entered the first stage of the program with one or two other people who've gone on to even you know o- other companies within the organization and so you create kind of density of relationships, or our goal is to create density of relationships laterally. And so w- ways to do that, we, we have an, an all-company kind of team lunch on Fridays, where kind of the first half of it is a bit of a social check-in, and we kind of get a, we sort of ask a kind of hokey question of the week and get a bit of an update from everyone on, you know, how their week's gone. And then the second half of it is we, we have a, a speaker present, and often that's someone internally who's presenting on some type of project they've been working on. Or sometimes we bring in someone external to share their story and we can ask them questions. And, and so that that's a sort of feature of our weekly cadence. We also organize increasingly fairly consistent kind of team training schedule. And that can be kind of CEO sort of upper management level, but also sort of middle or, asp- or sort of aspiring management level. So again, additional ways to Ideally, get, these, get individuals some relevant and practical training, but also to build kind of relationship and, and relationships and connection laterally across different companies. From, and we also do two kind of all company sort of leadership events a year. So we do a retreat. We had our first one ever last year. We're, we're pretty much locked and loaded for version 2.0 coming up in the, in, the, in the spring here. Then we do a holiday party at the end of the year. Where we, we bring everyone to Portland and, and kind of sort of celebrate the year and sort of make sure everyone has time to you know enjoy each other's company. And then finally, just from like a, a weekly kind of monthly cadence, I, I generally am speaking to almost all of our CEOs once a, once a week, sometimes for longer than others. But in general, we're, we're getting fairly high frequency touch points just to touch base on what's going on share information in, in both directions and i think the the practice there helps build a baseline for kind of what normal is and and so that that helps identify hey when something's going really well that's you know an opportunity to celebrate and reinforce and share knowledge frankly and if something's going poorly hey it's an opportunity to recognize hey this you know we we need to make sure we're allocating sort of resources and support in this direction to help you know help work on whatever the problem may be
0: when you say like you're a big fan of communication in, in small companies is there an ideal set of principles and tools that you're looking to reach internally and then is there a kind of a, a similar Chenmark ideal level of communication that you're also reaching for or maybe you have you feel like you're almost there
3: i definitely don't think i'm almost there i think i think it's one of those like it's a journey it's not a destination what you're going for is you're going for situational awareness Across the organization, you know, so that people know what they need to know when they need to know it. But, you know, It's the proverbial, like if you can get people sort of contextually aware, you can get people all pulling in the same direction, right? You know what problems need to be solved. You know, no one's doing duplicative work or no one's working on something that's already been solved or no longer a priority or whatever. I don't think I certainly never got there, um, but you're just trying to drive that awareness through the organization and ideally. Down the organization as much as possible. So I think a part of what everyone talks about of, you know, empowering the whole organization, pushing decisions down the org chart as much as possible. I think what that really entails in my mind is trying to drive, you know, sort of contextual understanding down the org, org chart so that when people are confronted with options, they have a good sort of decision tree to go through to, to, to make the right decision or make a good call. So that's what I'm always chasing, but I, I definitely wouldn't say I've, I've gotten there.
0: Is there a way that you're storing some of these decisions that have been made in the past in similar situations? I like could see some sort of database, like I don't know if you've used Rome Research before. You could probably even just do it in a giant Google Doc of different situations you've had with customers or employees, record kind of what the the problem was and the decision you made and outcomes, and then allow people to search through it for similar situations that they might be working with in their own companies. Do you have any? storage vehicle like that or is it kind of is all in your heads for now?
3: I've never even heard of Rome research. So I like so I guess not documentation is definitely not my my strong suit. I actually mm-hmm. just heard of a service called Scribe that was recommended to me that I was checking out and passing along to some of our CEOs because process documentation is something that like, I'm not great at. And so I definitely need to get better at that, need to do more of it. I would say what you're talking about is maybe so detailed that I might actually shy away from a bit to the to the in the extent that or in through the lens of I'm not wild about focusing on methods you know in this specific situation this is what we did and so you should try and replicate that right because the nuance behind that is going to be lost right exactly what was the situation exactly how did that customer come to that situation what was the what were the expectations set 3 months ago what had been communicated with that customer leading up to that issue and so I'm I'm much more into the principles behind the methods as opposed to the methods themselves. And so, you know, how and and if if you get that right, the reality is, is like you could cover reams and reams and reams of situations by ideally transferring a few principles to people, right? So I can't tell you exactly every situation that's gonna come across your radar, but if you evaluate things with these three principles in mind, like you're probably gonna make the right call. And that's a lot more scalable than Here's ten thousand different situations that might come across your, you know, your purview as a leader when it, you know, in terms of either employee situations or customer situations or equipment situations. You know, that that would be brutal to try and compile.
2: One one of the things I I should have mentioned when talking about kind of team communication is we also do a, a monthly CEO meeting where all the all the leaders of all of our companies get together on a on a call, and a lot of this is modeled after kind of a little bit of like forum structure that you might see in in YPO or EO or or, or any one of those organizations. But the idea is that you're identifying sort of impactful issues that have come up, positive or negative, and creating a, a platform to share relevant experiences that anyone in the group has had around that particular issue. So, you know, it may seem counterintuitive that you have a Food manufacturing CEO and a lawn care CEO, you know, sharing best practices on a particular issue, and and so we, we're, what we're not trying to do, to Palmer's point, is say, all right, well, in this specific situation, this is what you should do, because there's all sorts of nuance around the particular industry, the particular business, the, the individuals involved, et cetera. But oftentimes, that experience sharing can help uncover kind of core principles around a particular issue, and so kind of soliciting that input from kind of our whole team ends up creating a very interesting mosaic around a lot of these a lot of these important points
0: yeah i think i think that makes sense and i definitely don't think you should be creating reams and reams of situations that i agree that would be laborious maybe maybe besides like situations are there some processes or like something simple like job description templates that are stored and easily you know Findable somewhere that you can share amongst companies. Because I feel like you're in kind of an interesting situation where you have like an, a YPO just within Chenmark with all your different companies and CEOs, all of which run different businesses with different business models. So you have, you know, potentially dozens of case studies of different ways to handle certain problems. Maybe you're already getting that enough of that sharing through kind of the normal communication cadences you've talked about. But it, it just seems like a really unique situation to be in if you're. Like, if you're, I, I think of like a, you could have an internal reporter of some kind who's their only job is to report to you, but they like create articles and, you know, source different processes or content based on what happened in all these different companies and share them with with everybody.
2: So I would say that that happens to a degree, but our our sort of system and process around that is, I think you would find disappointing. That 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 happens. More on uh, very often, just on a on a very organic basis. So, each see each week. But this is one of the reasons why it's important to us to build that lateral connection I was mentioning earlier. So, if CEOs know each other and they're friends with one another and have some shared experience, kind of back in their earlier, you know, or earlier in their trajectory at Chenmark. What you're, what you're ultimately doing is is reducing the friction associated with picking up the phone or hitting someone up on Slack or sending an email and saying, hey, you know, I need to come up with a job description for an HR manager or whatever it is. H- has anyone dealt with that? How did you handle that problem? Or I need to reprice a contract or I need to renew my insurance or, you know, any number of different things. There, there's quite a lot of conversation happening on all those topics all the time, it just is happening kind of laterally at the operating company level currently. And so I honestly, I, our focus to date has been more, more on building the connective tissue to allow that to happen as opposed to building the infrastructure to have that be sort of like a self-service portal that lives at the, at the holdco level. But I think it's, it's, it's worth thinking about that as an additional kind of paradigm or, or way to kind of reinforce some of these concepts.
0: You mentioned communication being a, a journey and not a destination. Is there, what's that next piece of the journey for this communication cadence you have and this connective tissue you're working to build? So
2: honestly, I, I think a big part of it, and Palmer to definitely jump in here, but, but I think a, a big part of it is how it scales. So th- there's a there's an intimacy to how we are able to interact currently, and and a level of of sort of personal rapport that we'd love to preserve, and and that becomes more challenging as the company count grows and the geographic spread expands. And to be honest, I don't have a fantastic answer sitting here today on exactly what that looks like at you know. And companies other than to say our our goal is to make sure that when we do the next one you know it's important to us to try to maintain some of the depth of kind of relationship building that we've been able to achieve thus far but i think that's the big challenge is how do you how do you preserve that as much as possible while also continuing to scale and reinvest capital and 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 ultimately expand the number of businesses that we own
0: What's the pace of acquisitions today like in an average year how many companies would you acquire or new platforms or add-ons kind of what's the number today you think It's
2: interesting and I mean the, the 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 black and white answer is probably is around 3 to 5 kind of deals a year I think one of the interesting things that's happening that frankly we really didn't model for when we were first sort of hatching the idea and laying down the initial infrastructure is that, you know, there's sort of the macro flywheel of, of ChenMark overall. And you can think of a really simplified kind of hold co, hold co compounding model where you say, look, every dollar of incremental free cash gets consolidated and sent up to ChenMark itself and then gets reallocated into a new acquisition. And that, that, that creates a very simple and fairly elegant Excel model. Our lived experience is that as you, you know, get familiar with the operations of our individual companies and start becoming part of the fabric of the business and sort of overall community in the various geographies in which we operate, what we're starting to see is sort of very interesting kind of micro flywheels start to take shape within each of our individual businesses where they're very compelling opportunities to reinvest in, in, in you know either or, organically or or inorganically at the operating company level and and so that creates an additional layer of kind of scaling or or sort of capital need that is is sort of in in, in addition to kind of the the kind of core sort of ten mark wide flywheel and so it wouldn't surprise me if on a on an absolute Number of transaction transactions level, we we saw that number tick higher over the next call it one three five years as these micro flywheels start to take shape, while we kind of maintain the cadence of one maybe two larger more kind of platform type acquisitions. If that makes sense, I
0: mean it's it's hard to model that sort of stuff on an Excel sheet you know eight years ahead of time so. I think it's. There's no reason to blame yourself for that. Yeah,
2: well, and it, it's it's more. I think one of the things we talk about consistently consistently is, you know, it, it's very easy to build build that simple Excel model and say, hey, this whole co idea sounds awesome. I should do that. I, and you know that 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 shouldn't. You know, I, I don't say that to dissuade people. I, I think our lived experience is one where has been just much more. Serendipitous and opportunistic than a simple Excel model would lead one to believe, and and so I think when when we th- from a, from a management or sort of infrastructure setup or, or ecosystem setup perspective, it's less all right. Well, my Excel model says I was supposed to buy three companies this year, you know, did I or didn't I? It, it's more, can we create an environment where we're open to opportunity or wherever it may manifest throughout the organization? So if that looks like a bunch of smaller sort of interesting tuck-in opportunities at our various operating businesses, you know, that's that's just as much a success as, as buying a larger kind of quote-unquote platform company that will sort of be a new sort of subsidiary under the Chenmark umbrella.
0: Are there any other flywheels or results of, you know, seven, eight years of compounding that were hard to predict but that you've been pleasantly surprised by? Or unpleasantly. Yeah. I mean, I'll
2: I'll take a stab, but I think Palmer definitely jump in here. But I, I would say in in hindsight, definitely predictable, but not something that we were hanging our hat on. But I think, you know, knowledge and experience and and just familiarity with a lot of the core challenges of small business operations is absolutely something that, that compounds in a very powerful way. Not so much I mean obviously it would be great if you could avoid issues or or and and pivot toward great opportunities i think more often it's the way we we observe that is is the, the the cycle rate improves so we are able to adapt and and overcome challenges a little bit faster now than we were previously our ability to onboard a new company or to work through sort of diligence or or any kind of element of the of the acquisition process, a lot of that is is quicker and more efficient now, and so that that all you know that that all all those processes and all that all those reps do compound and compound in a pretty interesting way that I'm not sure we were as mindful of when we first got going as we
3: are now. Yeah, I would say to sort of zoom out more broadly speaking, confidence and conviction in. In certain decisions is a is a flywheel. Right, like, remember the first time we talked about raising prices on customers and the paranoia that goes on. Your whole team tells you you're going to lose every single one of your clients, every single one of your customers. Right? You you think if you were to draw a sort of supply demand curve that you know, the demand is completely completely elastic, <laughs> and then you do it and you realize that's not the case. And then the next company that has to go through it or the same company has to go through it again. Yeah, you, know, you have you have that confidence and conviction, experientially one, hard won confidence and conviction in in sort of the the ability to diagnose a problem and, and know what you need to do and, and have confidence that it's the right move. I think that definitely compounds and talking about sort of the shared experiences of having been through those experiences in one company, those are gonna be highly relatable or translatable to other companies, even if they're in different industries the principles are going to be the same.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that's pretty interesting to talk about that I was, I was excited for for this episode is CEO incentives um, and more like management incentives broadly. I remember from when Trish came down for SMPash, she talked about this a little bit and it's, it sounds like it's primarily a return on equity focused incentive structure for CEOs. Is that still the case today? And perhaps what's been the evolution of CEO incentives
1: over time with ChenMark?
2: Yeah, so I I think what what just described is, is largely still in place. There haven't been really any changes over the last several years. But just to sort of recap recap that, our our kind of core financial metric is is free cash flow, and each each CEO earns a split of each dollar of free cash flow generated. So it's a pretty trans, transparent, sort of easy to understand mechanism. The the sort of additional wrinkle is that anyone who receives a free cash flow based bonus then has the opportunity to acquire stock in the holding company. So the idea is that you're compensated directly and very tangibly in cash for the value or for free cash that you generate for your operating business. But if you buy into the larger kind of capital compounding story of Chenmark overall, there's a way to participate that in that very directly as well. So I think a few different and I think two big pieces that we've iterated on since early days. I think it took us a little bit of time to triangulate on free cash flow as the most important measure. So we had sort of an early version incentive program where we were compensating people mainly just based on the income statement. And that was creating some scenarios where you had some questionable accounting behavior in in an effort to juke the stats, so to speak, so we found free cash to be a more more comprehensive measure that was a little bit more all encompassing of all the moving pieces of the business and you know all the all the pieces of the financial statements so that was a, an early pivot. I think the other piece that we kind of wanted to incent is the the power of all- allocating capital across the organization, so how do you make sure that people have an opportunity to participate in 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 sort of this ecosystem where we can take company take capital from where it's being produced often quite efficiently but with limited reinvestment opportunity and redeploy it into areas where perhaps the raw free cash flow yield is somewhat lower, but there is a much larger scaling opportunity so from a from sort of a long-term return perspective, you know that's gonna be a, a sort of affected by the returns on capital that we're able to generate and the, the scale of our reinvestment opportunity. And, and so if we are solely compensating people based on the, their individual performance at the operating company level, there's less of a mechanism for buying into the larger capital pooling and reallocation opportunity associated with the chenmar platform so hence the the idea of creating the employee stock purchase program where folks can participate in that very directly
0: yeah can you talk more about the the stock purchase program it kind of reminds me of i think buffett was talking about why he doesn't give stock grants to the various berkshire ceos and he he said something like, you know, if they want the stock, they're welcome to buy it on any given day, any given business day, And doesn't do typical stock grant plans. Can you kind of talk through the stock purchase plan and kind of how you, how you view that program kind of in a mix of your other incentives as well?
3: I mean, the reality is like, we believe we, we, we would agree with Buffett, right? So like that's why CEOs are compensated based on the free cash they generate. They're compensated in cash. And then they're left with the decision of, do I want to turn around and invest this cash in ChenMark stock? The, diff- the, the big difference obviously is like, ChenMark stock does not trade on any given day. It trades once a year, one time once a year. And that is also the liquidity mechanism that we have for stock. So that gives us opportunities for employees to have some liquidity, obviously not stock-like you know public market liquidity in their stock. And, so that mechanism, Frank, to be totally honest was was stolen from the mob. I know just James and I both we actually went to the same high school as the as the founder, so I knew them and knew that that's what they did. They sort of make this internal market to sort of give opportunities for equity like compensation without necessarily being public and without dealing with stock options and grants where you're basically forcing someone else to hopefully value something that's long-term, long-duration, and fairly liquid the same way you do. And so I think by having things in cash, having that decision rest for the employee, but then giving them the option, but not the obligation, puts that puts that on, on the team member and says, hey, if you want to buy in, great, we'd love to have you. You're the only people that have access to ChenMark stock, but if not, that cash is yours.
0: Have employees ever asked if that's available as a grant? Is that... Have there been any pushback against it being a stock purchase plan versus more of a traditional option grant? Like if someone came from a company that had option grants as a big part of their compensation driver, is that often a a clash with what what you have here?
3: No no one's asked me, so I don't know if someone's asked James, but no, it hasn't come up for me. It's come up.
2: In various forms, not as explicit as hey like what's your what's your option program the so, but it has it has come up in ver- come, in various ways the One of the things that we like about this particular model is that it's very, very simple, and our our goal over time is to uh, responsibly in, in, you know in very much a crawl walk run kind of framework, expand the pool of folks internally who are able to participate. And I guess in our experience, it's important that the plan, if it's going to be rolled out fairly broadly, it's important that that is is quite simple to understand. And so getting into options and how they're valued and whether they're in or out of the money or any of those sorts of things just sort of layers on an, an extra degree of complexity, that's a little bit tricky. And I think for us, the other the other piece of it is the the kind of affirmative purchase decision, as Palmer mentioned. So, I think there's there's trade offs with with any incentive program. I think we're we're always trying trying to sort of study what others are doing and kind of compare that to our, to our own model. I think you know could there be tweaks in the future, potentially, but for now, I think the, the sort of benefits of the way we've laid things out to us is kind of outweigh, um, some, you know, some of the other, some of the other options.
0: What other companies or organizations do you look for, for ideas or inspiration on compensation plans? Like who do you admire out in the world?
2: I think one of the things we've, we've been, we've stressed pretty consistently kind of since day one, largely due to our own lack of knowledge is sort of the importance and value of interdisciplinary thinking. So, you know, certainly, as Palmer mentioned, sort of Berkshire and and their model is something that we've studied a lot. I think it's quite interesting. There's a lot of ink spilled. Buffett and and Munger as investors and quite a lot less spent on the sort of ecosystem that they've created. So we tried to spend more of our time kind of parsing tea leaves around the ecosystem. I mean, a, a lot of the other kind of giants you'd think of. So more recently, there's been quite a lot of, of really interesting content put out on Transdime. We've studied them quite a bit. We've looked at Constellation, Walmart. There's a few others, but honestly, anytime there's, there's kind of highly transparent information available about programs like this, it's really it's, it's quite interesting to, to read about it and try to study up. Whether that means we adjust something accordingly or not—that's a sort of separate question. But I think when folks are generous enough to share kind of what what they're doing and what's worked for them, I think that's that's really valuable information and and something that we we try to absorb as much as as much as possible.
0: So CEOs are compensated on a kind of a dollar free cash flow method. Is, the, if, is that the incentive structure for? anyone who has some sort of equity or business level incentives within a company or are there different structures for you know kind of middle management or frontline employee level or or is it basically all the same but just different amounts of that incentive
2: to be honest it varies a little by company so beneath the ceo it's 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 sort of up to that individual operator to kind of determine what kind of incentive scheme works best for their particular business Increasingly, a number of our companies do sort of use a free cash flow type framework to compensate their, certainly their kind of middle, upper and middle management folks. I would say, and Palmer, you can speak more to this, but generally speaking, a lot of the, I would would say sort of entry level roles tend to get compensated more on operational metrics than on sort of a, a kind of all encompassing kind of free cash flow measure. But Palmer, I'll let you sort of speak more to that.
3: Outside of the CEO, the the best the best way to pull in free cash flow on a on an operating company incentive compensation basis is probably to have it determine the size of the pool rather than allocating direct percentages to people. You know, when you're talking about free cash flow, capital allocation, financing decisions, working capital management you know, fewer and fewer people are going to have true responsibility over those things outside this outside the CEO maybe the senior leadership team depending on who's in charge of what then when you certainly when you get down to the middle management level those and and to the field staff or in, or to the sort of direct direct labor pool those people are going to be very far removed from a lot of the components that that transition from the P&L to the cash flow statement i've definitely experimented with some have found that a better balance is to have in- incentives for the SLT, the sort of the senior leadership team and, and I'll say like senior middle management, be more around sort of longer term goals, focus more on free cash flow generation, and be comfortable with that being a little bit more ambiguous and a little bit less certain. and then as you drive down the organizational chart, have more operational metrics where you're trying to drive discrete outcomes. Probably, on the revenue through gross profit lines of the income statement,
0: have you found that a free cash flow based compensation plan does it does that work against any like big reinvestment projects, or like you mentioned, taking capital from where it's generated to where areas where it might be invested for a, a you know decent return over time when you if you're going to invest all that cash in some other investment in a company, if that lowers free cash flow, does that create any incentive for the CEO to not do that plan? Or is it just a matter of you just have to make sure your CEOs are long-term thinkers and understand that over time that will work out in their favor anyway, even if it's not just this year? Yeah, I think the,
3: the solution there is you got to be long-term focused. Certainly, like it, it could create a perverse incentive if you're focused on the next 12 months that might take a little bit of a, a free cash flow hit. I think the benefit uh, offsetting that is that it's a free cash flow split without a hurdle of free cash flow, right? Typically when you talk about bonus pools a lot of times say, "All right, well, if you hit budget, that's when you unlock the bonus pool." But what we do is is totally different, right? It's a it's a split of free cash flow. So as long as there's literally $1 of free cash flow, you're technically earning incentive compensation. which means On the downside, you could have tremendous value destruction and still be getting incentive compensation. But the benefit is that you're not forcing people to hit arbitrary targets before they're getting a cut of free cash. So the hope is that you have a a balance of short-term focus on returns with long-term orientation towards free cash flow optimization.
2: I I think it it does put a premium on conviction around capital allocation decisions. So. So I I think one we emphasize and sort of set up set up the structure to reinforce capital, particularly equity efficiency, and oftentimes the way that can manifest if you're being very prudent about your deployment of equity is is to basically be always focused on how to utilize less of it. I think one of the things that we're working on or thinking through is, is how to make sure how, how can we work on generating like the requisite conviction around capital reallocation decisions, even if those things are short-term negative and, and, and making sure that the, and, and sort of making sure people are really thinking through sort of the, up you know, what, what could go right, essentially if they redeploy capital in another business, I would say, Culturally and historically, we've been very focused on managing downside and preservation and production of cash. I think as we continue to evolve, there are going to be opportunities where we will need to redeploy capital. And so making sure that we are building process around that, that's sort of as robust as our our underwriting process for new deals, for example you know, it, it is helping to reinforce those decisions and, and and making sure that we, you know, we, we chase opportunity when it's available to us.
0: Yeah, I could see like if you're running some business that was growing really quickly or founded, if there's a new market or a product that they came out with that was growing really quickly and they made a bunch of investments for it and the company was growing and revenue was growing and it was becoming a more valuable company, but free cash flow was still low and kind of the same that there could, be some conflict back and forth. But I guess you just need to, yeah, find CEOs that are, that are okay with that and understand the long term nature of it. I think to, to address that, Alex, I think the reality is like that's very
3: classic of a startup, right? Like the situation you're describing is the, the Jeff Bezos Amazon produces cash flow from operations, but then turns around, and reinvests 100% of it, and it's growing incredibly rapidly. we're we're typically not investing in businesses where that type of extreme rapid growth that consumes huge amounts of capital is really a thing. So like maybe maybe we'll get presented with that situation down the road. But typically, when you're talking about investment opportunities, you're not talking about payback periods that are stretching out into the decades. You're talking about investment opportunities that are very real and tangible. And because you understand the business deeply, you have a you have strong conviction around the payback period. And, and generally, it's going to be on a shorter time frame, not necessarily immediate, but you're going to have high conviction that you're going to turn that investment into a return.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You also mentioned that you don't base compensation around hitting a budget. It's a just a free cash flow, whatever the number happens to be. You can kind of walk through that philosophy a little bit more. I like the most common way for that I've seen is based on some budget and that's where any bonus compensation is is triggered from. But I think I, yours has been your model has been less familiar to me from just my conversations on the podcast or with others
3: i mean james James will probably weigh in here too my My view is that it's it's to promote long term orientation, right having experimented with comp round budgets, you know, you miss budget, or especially if that budget is a high watermark, if you miss it, now what you're, you know, you're, you might not appreciate it, but what you're really in, incentivizing is taking bigger and bigger swings to get to catch back up to where you were and, and to then reach where you want to go. And so by not having a target that we're saying you got to hit this in order to earn anything, I think we're creating, I believe that we're, we're creating an environment where we're allowing our CEOs to be patient and understand that, what matters is consistency and chasing better and compounding small gains far more than it is to hit some number that's 10 percent higher than what it was in next year in order for you to unlock
1: your compensation.
2: One of the reasons I was late for the podcast today was I was on a, on a budget call, so I can speak to this very tangibly. We uh, often emphasize that you know, the, the kind of key metric that matters is how you compare to your, your prior self. so when we're evaluating performance, in most cases, we are paying a lot more attention to year-over-year comps, either monthly or quarterly, or trailing twelve months, or whatever it is. Sort of actual to actual, as opposed to sort of budget versus actual. Particularly from in an evaluative context. That being said, we we emphasize budgets as a very very important tool, but but as a tool, not as a not as a mechanism to evaluate whether the CEO is doing a good or a bad job. So. We want the budget to incorporate sort of the collective best thinking about how the business is likely to perform, and then, ideally, internally, that's work product that can help drive outcomes or around whatever those bud- that budget happens to be. But we're not sort of using it as a our kind of our our, our role and our contribution to that process is not saying, you know, hey, you know, like this should be your number, and more can we participate in, in the thinking around how we're getting to whatever our forecast happens to be? So again, the idea there is to make sure that it's kind of a participatory, a participatory process to create a very useful functional tool and, and not sort of a mechanism to uh, evaluate performance. I would say at, at the end of the day, our, what we're trying to create is an environment where folks are incentivized to produce cap- cash free cash and, and then to, you know, also help, help to generate reinvestment opportunities for that cash. So, you know, your budgeted EBITDA is an input there, right? So, you know, it, it, it plays a role, but it's a a little bit tangential to the core emphasis.
0: Are there any other, common principles around compensation or budgets that you hear about often or or methods that are used in other companies you hear about often that you've decided just don't fit with what you want to do.
3: I have one, but I've already talked about it on Alex on your podcast. I hate commissions. I think they're I think they're I think they're terrible incentives. They're first of all it's not a paired metric. So it's focused on revenue. I don't care about revenue. I care about gross profit and I care about free cash. I just think it's horribly short-sighted. I know why people do it. It's super simple. It's super easy. But I continue to hate commissions.
0: And that was even within sales positions or like within sales? Like you didn't... Mm-hmm. Still do. Still hate it. So where, like we can, like, what's the, what's the 30 second review? Cause I'm, I'm not sure most folks haven't seen that conversation of ours yet.
3: Well, so in, in general, a single metric not paired against anything is going to be rife with unintended consequences. So I, I could probably broaden that to just like any compensation structure focused on one single metric that is especially income statement oriented right so like we've we've done it on free cash but even our definition of free cash is something that's from a true financial sort of academic sense would be something a lot more burdened right so we're not free cash for us is is a lot more burdened than just simple cash flow from operations minus growth capex for example but my point on commissions was you incentivizing revenue the company any company really shouldn't care about revenue you should care about Economics, in economics, and we care about free cash. And unless you're very, very tight on the pricing leeway you give to sales staff, you're going to run the risk of selling a dollar for ninety-five cents. Or even if you do have strict, strict control over pricing, you're going to run the risk of poorly set expectations in order to get that commission or get that sale. And I just don't think it aligns the organization properly, right? So. I could go on long for a long time on commissions. I'm sure there's some very discrete situations where a, a true pure sales commission, you, you know, you eat what you kill can work. I just generally my view is, is business is a team sport and compensating a subset like a like a sales team on something as, as super simplistic as revenue generation. I think misses a lot of things and creates a lot of unintended consequences. James any any that you've thought of
2: i mean there, there's plenty of things I mean we talked about the option thing previously. I think there's plenty of other systems i, I don't know I'd go so far as to say hey it, it 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 just wouldn't work for our model i think that's that's probably too too strong. I think there's probably a lot of things that could work it ultimately you kind of i think for us we sort of you Pick the, re- pick the one that seems to check the most boxes, acknowledging that there may be others out there that, you know, that have some appeal in, in, in one way or another. So, you know, I, I think there, there, there are features that our, our model doesn't incorporate. You know, I mean, options being one of them, you could think about like rolling performance over a period of time that would help kind of reinforce a sort of long-term orientation. You know, there, there may be mechanisms to handle the short-term Negative free cash, long term, high return situation we were talking about earlier. I, I think I, I would say my overall view is, is isn't that we have sort of the, the perfect be all and end all system. I, I think what we have is working quite well for us right now, but you know there there certainly could be scenarios that come up in the future that warrant adjustment or a tweak or a slight modification. The other sort of big Potential unintended consequences for to our model first is it potentially encourages under it's sort of the the flip side of what you were talking about earlier. So our model potentially encourages underinvestment in a company. So if you're if you're not even hitting kind of a a requisite sort of maintenance capex target, you're potentially long term destroying kind of long term earnings power, and that's a problem. Our, Our our model also encourages leverage so we emphasize equity efficiency and we we impose a a capital charge for the utilization of, of equity so there is a a slight incentive toward utilization of debt the way we handle those things currently is on the on the capex side a lot of kind of sort of pretty involved conversation on what the business requires to sustain earnings power and and honestly most of our ceos Sort of understand that, so that hasn't really been an issue for us. And on the capital structure side, that's something that we we have a lot of input on and kind of monitor in in a, in a bit of a hierarchical way, which is one of kind of the only things where we have a particularly large sort of outsized influence on the operating companies. So there may be honestly ways to tweak or improve that in the future, but for for now, I think our models worked quite well.
0: I'd say
3: it's important to note that, like, there is no such thing as the perfect compensation system, and even a really good compensation system or incentive structure isn't going to turn the wrong fit candidate or the wrong fit person into the right fit person. You know, so like, you shouldn't try, right? And I think when people are chasing that golden formula with like, I just need a few more independent variables to get this formula magic, and to to you know, couch for all the potential unattended consequences, like it doesn't exist and what you're chasing there is effectively I can turn anyone into the right person with the right really really intricate incentive compensation structure. So part of the GVP program, part of having people go through multiple phases before they become a CEO, is that so we have confidence that we have the right people who are in those seats in very you know high leverage positions where they're given a ton of autonomy, they're given the keys to an organization with whom you know many livelihoods are are depending, and telling them hey like this is this is your responsibility and we trust you and, and in the largest degree you know we're here we're here for support there's a there's a ton of ton of resources and people who've been there before but ultimately like trust your instincts and you got to rely on the fact that you have the right person with the right characteristics and the right behavior traits there and then what you're what what I feel like we're going for on the comp side is just have it be fair right not to have it be right and turn someone who would otherwise want to make bad decisions into someone who magically is forced to make good ones because of the comp structure they have in place.
0: Yeah, that's a good set of principles to anchor around. We're over time, so I'll I'll cut it there. But thank you for for sharing a little bit more of your time. It's always fun to chat with you guys and uh, hear a little bit more about a lot of your philosophy and the work you've done so far. Um, So thanks for doing this again. I really, really appreciate it. It's been fun.
2: Yeah, thanks, Alex.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborne Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.